Wake up. It's Sleep Paralysis with Dr. Chris Winter. This is episode 16, Sleep Paralysis. There's a demon in my bed. Uh, really excited to be here. This is going to be a fun topic and one that a surprisingly large number of people have asked about. Hey, can you do an episode about sleep paralysis? So here we are, episode 16, doing it. Uh, really glad to be here with you guys. My name is Dr. Chris Winter. I'm a sleep specialist and neurologist. If you want to uh, get in touch with me, follow me on my socials, uh, Dr. Chris Winter Instagram, Dr. Chris Winter TikTok, Dr. Chris Winter Twitter. Um, one of the we, we uh, if you're new to the show, we usually start off with uh, corrections, criticisms, and the only criticism I've gotten this week was uh, a very kind critique of you need to start off your show with a little bit more enthusiasm instead of just I've been starting it off with hello hello this is Dr. Chris Winter so I, I thought that was a valid criticism let's let's amp it up here a little bit we've got a, a, a group of people who are part of this family now and, and they demand more so I was thinking back uh, I was driving, actually, listening to Sirius XM Radio, and a song came on that I hadn't thought about in a long time. It was by a group called Breakfast Club, and the song was Right on Track. So if you go look it up, you won't hear it on the radio, but when I heard it, I immediately remembered some friends of mine in, in school really liked the beginning of this music video, back when music videos were important. And the video started off with you know, these guys in the band flipping through channels, and they came across this guy who goes, wake up, it's Breakfast Club. And we used to say that for whatever reason. And that was back in 1987, two years after the Breakfast Club, John Hughes movie came out. But this was a band that was actually formed in 1979, so they came well before the movie. And what's really interesting about Breakfast Club, the band, is that Madonna was their drummer for a period of time. And then she recorded a solo album and it caught fire with uh, Like a Virgin and the rest is history. It's a, there's a cool movie about that, actually. I think it's called Madonna and the Breakfast Club. And, and that's what they're referring to. So wake up, it's sleep unplugged. Uh, no other corrections, criticisms for from previous episodes, but if you find one, just DM me through my Twitter, again, DR Chris Winter or Instagram, and, and let me know. Uh, I'm going to introduce a new segment to the show, which is update. And the update that I wanted to talk about was there's a really cool study uh, that was posted not too long ago about weighted blankets, which we talked about back in the episode on... Uh, restless leg actually potentially being effective in terms of helping release melatonin. So they showed that people who use these weighted blankets were actually secreting more melatonin. And I'll post the, the, the study on our socials. And it's really interesting, the idea that, you know, this weight that could help potentially people sleep better, it's sort of used you know, kind of off-label, there's no great studies about it in restless leg. But maybe there are things outside of light that can heavily influence melatonin secretion and maybe weight uh, on top of us you know, when we're sleeping is one of them. So I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to sort of update our restless leg episode on because we did talk about weighted blankets then. So let's move on to letters. And tonight's uh, today's letter is uh, appropriate because it's uh, germane to the topic that we are discussing today, which is 
sleep paralysis. And this is from Sophie G in Miami. And Sophie G wrote a letter that said, hey, Chris, like your show, I was uh, a newly graduated college student, uh, was visiting a friend and had several episodes of sleep paralysis while at her house celebrating her birthday. Uh, very terrifying. What's going on? What can I do about it? Uh, thank you very much, Sophie G. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, and it's interesting. There's lots of things I'm going to get into about that letter as we go through here. One thing I want to call to your attention uh, right from the beginning is recent college graduate and in a foreign environment. So she was spending the night at a friend's house celebrating a birthday. So three things there, college student, foreign environment, celebrating a birthday as young people will do. So we'll, we're going to refer back to that, Sophie G, as we go through this. But I want to start off with, with talking a little bit about the history and lore around sleep paralysis, because that, to me, we're really going to miss a golden opportunity to have a cool discussion if we don't talk about this in the episode. And sleep paralysis is interesting because it is a phenomenon that has been reported for centuries, but only recently understood. But as many things that experience, a lot of people experience, there become myths and legends and stories that kind of explain it. And even here in the United States, uh, particularly in the southeastern part of the country, there are a lot of interesting myths and legends surrounding sleep paralysis. In fact, um, in sort of Cajun uh, communities in Louisiana, they call the the, the situation, the, the, the sleep paralysis, Calchamar. And Calcha is French for press, and the Mar is Dutch for phantom. And I want to call attention to the word mar or mare because it's often used in describing this phenomenon. In fact, mare, mare, phantom, witch, night hag, all of these things sort of initially described this witch or demon that would supposedly visit you in some way or another during the night and create this situation. And different cultures have different ways of explaining it. There is a fantastic painting by Peter Fusilli, uh, who is a Swiss painter. I'm sorry, Henry Fusilli, sorry. Uh, Peter was his brother. He was an accountant, I guess. Uh, Henry Fusilli, who uh, in 1781 painted um, The Nightmare. And I'll post that on my social media as well, too. I've posted it before. My wife hates it. She's like, why didn't you post that crazy painting on your... I'm like, yeah, because it's so cool, because it's actually showing what individuals thought of as being sleep paralysis, which is what basically this sort of Renaissancean woman draped in white on a chaise, uh, clearly asleep with this kind of crouching demon sitting on top of her. And if you look in the back of the painting, there is a horse or a mare peeking around the corner, peeking around a curtain. Uh, and that was the nightmare sort of represented in the, in the, so nightmare we use now to represent any sort of bad dream, but its original meaning was the nightmare or the night witch, or the night phantom uh, that would come and, and cause these. And if you look in different cultures and, and, um, and, and lore and, and folklore and mythology, there are things written about incubus and succubus. 
So Incubus was a male demon or a male witch that would visit women in the night and have sex with them. Uh, and then the succubus was the opposite. That was the female demon that would visit men in the night and have the same thing. And if you follow you know, Lancelot and the Knights of the Round Table, Merlin was supposedly the product of a mortal woman and an incubus demon uh, had sex and it happened. And, and it's interesting when you look at some of the mythology about all this stuff and the, and the beliefs the belief was that if the incubus or the succubus visited you a lot in your lifetime, it could lead to mental illness and death. So obviously back in yesteryear, anybody who was you know, schizophrenic or had mental health issues and, and, and was, was not psychologically well, the thought was, well, it's because the incubus visits him or the succubus uh, visits him or incubus visits her too many times. And that's what's caused this, this terrible malady. Um, so, uh, so when you look at these cultures, they often talk about a witch, the witch riding you. Uh, and that's a very common phrase that we hear in the United States, uh, particularly in the South. Often when patients come to see me, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of throw out there, have you ever experienced the witch riding you? And every now and then a patient looks at you like, how did you know about that? Like, how do you know about the witch? Because it's often you're talked about in a family but they don't really talk about that in, in mixed company. So a lot of people think that's sort of a secret within the family. In fact, I had one man tell me, I can't believe you knew about that. My grandmother used to tell us about the witch riding you at night and would make us keep uh, from a, from our dinner setting a knife, like a you know butter knife, a fork and a spoon under our pillow. And that was to ward off the witch coming and riding us at night. And so the whole idea of witch riding you, or if you look at the Fusilli painting of this demon on the chest, it all came about because individuals who struggle and suffer with sleep paralysis feel as if there is a presence or a weight on their chest, often preventing them from breathing easily. And that's because part of the pathophysiology of sleep paralysis is paralysis. Your body is actually paralyzed during the event. Now, your diaphragm escapes the paralysis, so you are able to breathe. But all those muscles in between your ribs, the intercostal muscle, these are the muscles when you order a rack of ribs, that's what you're eating. Those muscles, their function is to make these incredibly stiff ribs very easy to move when you breathe out and very easy to move when you breathe in. I think I just did that in the opposite direction there. Um, in fact, what we, we realized from the sound, from our episode of white noise, I just made breathing sounds. And my guess is you were not able to hear them because we figured out very quickly that this software filters out any kind of sound like that. So you probably just heard sounds, but you can believe me, I was breathing. So when we lose that paralysis, I'm sorry, when we, when we, when we, when we are, when those intercostal muscles are paralyzed as in sleep paralysis, it makes the act of breathing really difficult because we're having to expand and bend our ribs, which is really difficult without that intercostal muscle assistance. So it feels like something is on top of you. It's crushing you and making it very difficult to breathe. Some other interesting treatments or ways you could ward off the witch that have been described over the years, salt under your pillow, um, 
So if you don't have knife and fork and spoon, you can just get some table saw, sprinkle it under your pillow, beans under the bed, a broom kept in the corner of the bedroom, screens on the windows, prayers before bedtime, and blessed religious elements in the room or near the bed. And, you know, I love this. And again, one of the things that attracted me to the field of sleep medicine was there is definite science behind sleep paralysis, which we'll get to. But then there's also the stories and the lore and the fiction that kind of grows up around it. So we have the night hag, we have the demons, the incubus, um, some ones that stand out in my mind. In Newfoundland, it was thought that if it was happening to you, if you could say in your mind or recite the Lord's Prayer backwards, the demon would release you. Um, in Sicily, the night hag or the night demon came wearing seven red hats. And if you could somehow capture one of the hats from the demon, it would leave you alone and also give you treasure. So you get this sort of leprechaun vibe with that situation. Sicily and Italy just does everything great. Uh, in Latvia, uh, if you could remove the demon's left toe during the paralysis while he was on top of you, if you could tear off his left toe, uh, he would leave and you, you got treasure and things like that. So there's so many cool things about that. And if you look up sleep paralysis, there's an endless number of cultural stories that kind of go along with it, which is so cool because they're all probably being developed independently. So who gets sleep paralysis besides our friend Sophie G in Miami? Well, a lot of people. Uh, it's thought to occur in up to 50% of the population at least once. The number I always carry with me is about 40% of the population, but some studies have it as high as 50. Now, that's usually 40% of people having it once and then probably never have it again. So isolated sleep paralysis. The number of people who have repeated episodes of sleep paralysis is much lower, probably in the eight to 15% uh, range. Although those figures are very difficult because this is one of those things where often self-reporting is very difficult. How does it manifest itself? It's usually a very unpleasant experience, kind of like our friend Sophie G said, um, where an individual awakens and is conscious to some degree. Some people can open their eyes, some people can't. And there's a feeling like, I know I'm awake, but I can't move. And it can be absolutely terrifying. It can feel like it lasts a long time. But most people, their episodes of sleep paralysis usually only last 30 seconds to a couple minutes. It's usually extremely brief, even though obviously when you're being smothered by a sex demanding demon, 30 seconds can feel like a much longer period of time. Um, uh, there was an interesting study in 2020 that actually said that about 23% of people experience it as a relatively positive phenomenon. So it doesn't have to be negative. In fact, when you look in lucid dreaming communities, and we'll do an episode on lucid dreaming, it's a fascinating, fun topic to talk to talk about. When you look at those communities, a lot of those individuals are very comfortable with sleep paralysis. In fact, they actually sort of manipulate the sleep paralysis as a way to enter into lucid dreamings or to do you know, sort of the reality checks. So not everybody experiences it as a negative uh, type of thing. There's also a belief that a lot of individuals who are experiencing or reporting paranormal uh, things, uh, alien abductions, visitations, 
they're probably experiencing to some degree, some population or percentage of those individuals are actually having episodes of sleep paralysis. And, and these misinterpretations of sort of scientific or medical phenomena as something extraterrestrial or spiritual is not uncommon. Uh, migraines were often thought of as being you know, visitations or uh, signs that you know, an individual has seen God or something of that nature. So it's not entirely unheard of. Um, so uh, the other thing that I often find interesting is I often talk about patients who feel electric shocks, um, buzzes, they hear voices, they have strong emotional feelings in and around the period where they're going to sleep or where they're waking up. And again, a portion of those individuals may be experiencing some variation of sleep paralysis. So I want I'm, this is going to be tough from a podcast perspective, but I'm willing to take the chance. And I want to dive in a little bit in terms of what's happening to the brain. So for all my wonderful neuroscientists out there listening to this, welcome. We're going to talk a little bit about exactly what's going on, because I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, we're going to scientifically be rigorous on the show. But number two, when you actually look at some of the risk factors for sleep paralysis, knowing kind of what's going on in your brain can be helpful. So let's start. So if you think about your brain, there's the big wrinkly part of the brain, and then there's the brain stem. And that's the part of the brain that's connecting the wrinkly thinking part of your brain to the part of your body uh, that, you're, that your spine, that's sending that signal and command out to the rest of your body for the most part. There are cranial nerves, I'm not going to get into that. So when you think about that connection, deep in that brain stem, there's a part of our brain you've probably heard of called the hypothalamus. And within the hypothalamus, is a lot of centers responsible for vigilance and sleep and all kinds of important things. So within the hypothalamus, there are histaminergic cells. You've heard of histamine. Uh, think about antihistamine makes you sleepy. So histamine is very activating. There's also a chemical called hypocretin or orexin. It's the chemical that's absent in narcolepsy. We probably talked a little bit about that earlier on. So these two chemicals are very important for wakefulness. When you antihistamine somebody or you get rid of orexin hypocretin, like in narcolepsy, you make somebody sleepy. So these are very much sleep, uh, sleep important cells within the body. So the hypothalamus is activating neurons in our nervous system that are suppressing REM sleep. So I want you to think of that pathway. You got the hypothalamus, it's sending out a signal to activate neurons that are suppressing REM. Okay, so when that's happening, we are activating REM suppressing neurons. So the REM suppressing neurons send out a suppressive signal to other REM promoting neurons. So they're actually suppressing something that would ordinarily promote REM sleep or dream sleep, which is actually when most sleep paralysis is happening because when we are dreaming, we are actively paralyzed. So when you go to bed at night, when I go to bed at night, we have a dream, we're gonna activate these cells in our brain that eventually tend to paralyze our body. So when we have a dream in our normal state, we're paralyzed during it. So those REM suppressing neurons send out an inhibitory signal to our spinal motor neurons. That's our muscles, essentially. So when the, when the inhibitory is inhibited, 
you get release. So in other words, what's happening here is the spinal motor neuron is the inhibited, the inhibitory is inhibited. So think about a guard at a cell, he's distracted. So what's keeping you from getting out of the cell, the inhibitory, the, the, the guard is being distracted. He's being inhibited and that allows the muscle to move free. So muscles can move. We don't have paralysis. And I'm gonna put a diagram on the, the picture that you can look at as we go through it. Now, I'm gonna give you a, an introduction to another part of the brain called the amygdala. Two little amygdala, it's part of our basal ganglia. It sits on both sides of our brain. You've probably heard that referred to in different types of scenarios, uh, heroicism, fear. It's part of the limbic system, which we'll talk about later on, emotional system of the brain. So the amygdala can be activated by fear. So if you're walking along and somebody jumps out of a closet and scares the hell out of you, the amygdala is turned on. And now it's going to send an inhibitory signal to those REM suppressing neurons that we were talking about that are being activated by the hypothalamus. So you can think about it. And if you're watching the video, there is a YouTube channel for Sleep Unplugged. So if you think about those REM suppressing neurons, you've got activation coming at it from the hypothalamus, but you have inhibition coming from the amygdala. So as fear increases, we increase that inhibition of the REM suppressing neurons. Now, that inhibitory signal to the inhibiting REM sleep promoting neurons is gone. So now that distraction of the guard is not there anymore. You've inhibited the distractor of the jail cell guard, and now the guard can do his job, which is to inhibit muscle activity, causing paralysis. So when the amygdala is overactivated, you get an imbalance that eventually leads to more paralysis. It's that simple. So let's think about that as it relates to sleep paralysis. Before we do, I'm gonna call your attention just briefly to another disorder that we sometimes talk about in sleep, and that's REM behavior disorder. That's an individual who during the night starts to have a dream, does not have the paralysis that should be there and can now act out the dream that they're having. Kind of like the opposite of sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis, you've got an abnormal paralysis happening. In REM behavior disorder, you have an abnormal lack of that paralysis. So when we think about what is genetically, what is causing sleep paralysis, well, there are genetic causes you can imagine that these neurotransmitter systems are a little bit stronger, a little bit weaker in one individual that could conceivably be passed. So some people are more susceptible to sleep paralysis than others. And when we talked about Sophie earlier being a college student, there are actually studies that talk about sleep paralysis happening more in college students. Why? Because if we think about the rest of the factors that lead to sleep paralysis, Think about the typical college student and they're at risk for almost all of them. Number one, sleep deprivation. They stay up late, uh, studying, they get up early, they take tests, they take naps, their sleep's kind of all over the place. Number two, sleep hygiene. They have unusual uh, schedules that aren't particularly well regulated. Alcohol, 
psychological stress, even smoking has been linked to sleep paralysis. So when you think about SOPG, what are her risk factors? Number one, she's a recent college student. So yeah, she's not in college anymore, but now she's probably law clerking somewhere, working in a big consultant's office, studying for her MCAT, you know, getting ready for medical school, law school, business school, whatever she's up to. She's probably got a lot of stress. That's a time in our life when things are pretty unsettled. Additionally, she was in a new place. And we know that individuals who are in strange environments on different schedules, that puts them more at risk for sleep paralysis. Remember what else she was said? She said she was there celebrating her friend's birthday. My guess is alcohol was involved, staying up late, reminiscing about the good old years at, you know, whatever university. So all those things are probably lending themselves to this young woman having an attack of sleep paralysis for the first time. And I'm in Charlottesville, Virginia. I can tell you that around midterms and finals at the University of Virginia, we see a lot of sleep paralysis. And it's usually isolated. There's usually a lot of reassurance and we move on. And so what do we think about in terms of an individual who might be having a lot of it? So again, first thing, it's just treatment reassurance. It's okay. People have sleep paralysis. I like during lectures to ask the audience, how many people have had an episode of sleep paralysis? Lots of hands go up. So if you're having them or have had them, first and foremost, it's okay. Now, if an individual says, look, I have them a lot, you know, it's kind of terrifying. It's actually leading me to dread going to bed. As I often hear, we've got a couple problems. Number one, we've got a problem where the, the, the episodes are happening frequently that, that we need to address. But number two, that fear element, let's go back to the amygdala. When we increase the fear coming from the amygdala, we're increasing that inhibition that eventually leads to more paralysis. So strangely, fear of the sleep paralysis can often lead to more of it, um, which is really interesting if you were to dive into the 23% of people who actually find it to be pleasurable, does the transition, and these are people who like lucid dreaming or into it, does the lack of fear of the sleep paralysis actually make it harder for them to have it and, and lucid dream? That'd be an interesting conversation to have with you. So, so the increased fear is something we want to deal with. So sometimes therapy, um, talking about the sleep paralysis, many patients I talk to will contact me and say, you know, ever since we spoke about it, I don't really have it anymore. I am praying. I would love for somebody to write me, DM me, it's again, DR Chris Winter, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and say, hey, I listened to your episode 16 on sleep paralysis. And ever since that time, I haven't had any more of it. Yeah, because you you, you reassured me that that would be awesome. Uh, so improving sleep hygiene, watching out for alcohol, right before you go to bed at night, not smoking, not drinking caffeine, all the things we've talked about with sleep paralysis can often be the next step or the next level of therapy, trying to get this under control. Cognitive behavioral therapy, there are many studies out there that have talked about the effectiveness uh, of using cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of treating sleep paralysis. Uh, antidepressants, uh, typically tricyclic antidepressants like uh, um, imipramine, um, Elevil, uh, can, can often be used because they tend to inhibit REM sleep in a way that 
that prevents the sleep paralysis. Um, also, SSRIs, there was a study uh, not too long ago about Isotelopram or Lexapro helping. And we know this, when we do studies on individuals who might have narcolepsy, one of the things we're looking for is unusual characteristics of REM sleep. And when you look at individuals who take these medications, it often suppresses the REM sleep. And remember, it's during REM sleep that the paralysis happens. So if REM sleep is inhibited, so too is that paralysis. Um, GHB, uh, gamma-doxybutyrate or sodium oxybate um, is also a medication that is often effective in reducing sleep paralysis. I'm gonna say a couple of things here, a couple of disclaimers. Number one, I do some consultation work for companies that make GHB. So I wanna I want to sort of disclose that. Um, uh, Jazz Pharmaceuticals, Harmony Bioscience, Avidel, um, all these drug manufacturers use GHB, um, sodium oxybate uh, as a treatment for individuals who have narcolepsy. Now, to be extremely clear and specific, these drugs, uh, Zywave, Zyrem, there's a new one that's just been released called Lumeras. They're all variations of sodium oxybate. They are used specifically to treat the excessive daytime sleepiness of narcolepsy and or the cataplexy of narcolepsy. So cataplexy is when this paralysis intrudes upon individuals during the day. You're walking down the street, somebody tells you a funny joke, and suddenly your body either fully or partially is paralyzed for a brief period of time. And we'll dive into all this during a future episode of narcolepsy. These drugs are not FDA approved to treat specifically sleep paralysis, but they can have very positive effects when it comes to that when patients take them. So anytime somebody's having routinely lots of episodes of sleep paralysis, we always want to ask questions about the presence of narcolepsy. Hey, in addition to the sleep paralysis you're having, are you excessively sleepy? Would your friends describe you as being sleepy? Do you fall asleep during your college classes, etc.? So it's really important to investigate that. And when you think about the pathophysiology, it's kind of fascinating. We just talked about how the increased inhibition from the amygdala can eventually lead to paralysis. So more inhibition from the amygdala. But what's happening in narcolepsy is less activation from the hypothalamus, mainly from the erexin or hypocretin. So whether you're getting more inhibition or less activation, it's the same thing. It eventually feeds down the pathway of creating paralysis. So it's the same net symptom, but coming from two completely different parts of the, of the brain, overactivation of one, underactivation of the other, which is absolutely fascinating to me. The last one I want to talk to you very quickly before we wrap the episode up is sleep, sleep apnea. And so one of the things that I often hear from individuals who have sleep apnea is, hey, I do fine, but I've noticed that I've started dreaming a lot. So when you look at somebody with sleep apnea, we've talked about that muscle paralysis, that intercostal muscle paralysis, but all the muscles get paralyzed during the paralysis of REM sleep that we're talking about. So if you can imagine an individual who's struggling to breathe, that's what sleep apnea is. And we talked about it in episode five, I believe, at least mild sleep apnea. 
we'll get more into the pathophysiology of sleep apnea in general in later episodes. But episode five, we talk about mild apnea. So sleep apnea is essentially where your airway collapses. You can't breathe. You wake yourself up. Well, you can imagine that sleep apnea is going to be exacerbated or worsened by anything that's affecting our muscles. So if you drink a lot of alcohol, it's a muscle relaxer. It causes more sleep apnea. Well, some individuals, most individuals have more sleep apnea during REM sleep than when they're not in REM sleep. So what happens is as they enter into REM sleep, the paralysis happens, they wake themselves up. And so for a lot of people who has their sleep apnea is first starting, they'll tell you, I dream a lot, right? Because as they start to dream in REM sleep, their sleep's interrupted with the obstructed airway and they wake up. So there are some studies that actually show that if you can stop that sudden arousal over and over that's coming from breathing during REM sleep, if you can prevent that arousal during the paralysis of REM sleep, you can kind of sidestep some sleep paralysis. So there's actually studies that show that sleep apnea treatments like oral appliances, like a dentist would make you, can actually solve some people's sleep paralysis problems. So back to Sophie G., Thanks for the for the comment and the and the and the time to to contact the show. I would reassure you about if these two episodes were isolated, probably nothing to worry about. Never hurts to talk to your doctor about it. But if this is something that you experience a lot, especially if you feel like you're sleepy a lot, again, talk to your doctor and maybe probe some questionings around narcolepsy. It never hurts to ask questions. Again, not doling out medical advice on the show, but just in general for individuals who are struggling a lot with sleep sleep paralysis, definitely something you'd want to talk to your doctor about uh, and explore a little bit more fully, especially if it's a repeated episode. So that's it. Fascinating topic for today. Really enjoyed talking about that. Please like, subscribe to, uh, contact the show, give us some ratings, give us some reviews. We really appreciate those of you taking the time to do that. Uh, the audience is really growing quickly, but I really want to keep it sort of communal and, and feel like we're all kind of a big uh, sleep unplugged family here. Um, so that's it. Uh, you can contact me, Dr. Chris Winter, Instagram, Dr. Chris Winter, TikTok, Dr. Chris Winter, uh, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, my books are The Sleep Solution Why Your Sleep's Broken and How to Fix It, uh, as well as the rested child, why you're tired, wired, irritable child may have a sleep disorder and how to help. Both are available. Both talk about sleep paralysis and narcolepsy, uh, both in the adult population, first book and the pediatric in the second. We do have a YouTube channel. If you want to watch these videos, they are available. Um, if you just type in sleep unplugged, YouTube, all the episodes are loaded up there. And if you are on social media, if you type in the hashtag sleep unplugged extras all run together, that's where I'll put the Fusilli painting and some other cool things about sleep paralysis throughout the week uh, to sort of expand upon and, and, and really fill in some color to this topic. Until next week, thank you very much for tuning in. Sleep well. This is Sleep Unplugged.